everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast. I'm your host, ESPN, and Arizona Cardinals play-by-play announcer, Dave Pash. Our guest this week is the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, Greg Sankey. Greg is somebody who has become one of the most powerful voices and faces in all of college sports. We'll talk with Greg about potential NCAA tournament expansion as well as college football playoff expansion and will it happen in 2024? The board was clear that come 26, their clear expectation is we have a 12-team format. To the extent it's possible, we could go early. Uh, We've got some some conversations over the upcoming weeks that may move us to that conclusion, to that finish line. Uh, But I'm not really clear that that still can happen. There's, There's still work to be done. Greg has spent a lot of time here in Arizona. He cites one of the early championship games at State Farm Stadium as being a springboard to the current success of SEC football. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and by Gila River Resorts and Casinos. Get ready for a football season like never before with BetMGM, an official partner of the Arizona Cardinals. Sign up today using code CARDS1000 and get your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 and over, Arizona only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. All right, now it's time for our conversation with the commissioner of the SEC, Greg Sankey. Well, first of all, Greg, as somebody who, like me, has ties to Central New York, you went to grad school at Syracuse. Tell me about you. I I know you're probably pretty busy and don't get a chance to watch a lot of NFL. Obviously, you guys have turned out a ton of players into the NFL, including here in Arizona. Who's your NFL team? Uh, The Bills. So back when I was young... You could watch the Giants, the Jets, and the Bills. None of them were very good in the 70s, at least at that point. And uh, I went with the upstate New York team, which you know people in like New York City consider where I'm from in upstate New York, Canada. It <laughs> flows even further. So we're, I'm a Bills fan, which uh, was great for those four Super Bowls, except I lived in Dallas, which made it more difficult going to Super Bowl watching parties since two of them Two of the four were against the Cowboys. They might be the team to beat this year, the way Josh Allen is playing. No, they you know, they, they, they got the win over Kansas City this weekend. I didn't see any of it. Last year I watched exactly one full NFL game and it was the game against Kansas City in the playoffs, which was you know, heartbreaking. I don't I don't end up emotionally invested in a lot of football since I usually have multiple teams playing. And uh, that was the one, and it went the wrong way. Yeah, if you're going to pick one to watch, it, it was a great one to watch just as a fan, but at the same time, uh, if you're a Bills fan, yeah, I, I totally get that. As somebody who spent time at Syracuse, you know, when you graduated from there and you got your master's, I think the year was 93, what, what did you think you would do? You've been at the SEC now for two decades and commissioner since 2015. What did you think you'd do when you left there? When I well, I was born and raised in Central New York, so I grew up about 20 miles from campus, towards the west, uh, outside a little town called Skinny Atlas. And when I finished my undergrad degree, my like my horizon that I could see towards was about you know Albany to the east, Buffalo to the west, down to Binghamton, maybe a little bit further north than Syracuse, but not much because of the lake effect snow. 
uh, kind of working and teaching and coaching. That was my idea. And then I was at Syracuse for my grad school because I was a, a full-time employee at Utica College, and they paid for my, my grad school, which is great. And at the end, which is really where your question started, but the lead-up was I had to complete an internship to graduate. So at the end of my actual classwork, uh, I could have stayed up there um, and worked in like summer camps. There's some basketball camps, some if you remember the Empire State games, if they were around when you were at Syracuse, yeah. do some of that work. And and I just decided to see if, you know, Division One athletics was something uh, where I could find an opportunity. And my wife and I were just married. We'd been married like three or four months when I started sending resumes out. We're about to celebrate our 34th wedding anniversary and just said to her, you know, I'd, I'd like to find out if I could work in college athletics at the division one level. And if I can, how far it might go. And, you know, I've clearly answered that question. Yes. Yes. To the top. You're one of the most powerful people in college sports and you're running the top football conference. A lot of people say to me and others that work for ESPN, you guys are biased against the sec bias is the wrong word because that has a negative connotation that somehow it's unfair, but the sec is the best. It's the best football. And we've seen a lot of players come through the Cardinals that, played in the SEC and were great players in the SEC and have gone on to become great players here with with the Cardinals. You're pretty active on social media and one of the things you've you've tweeted over the years has been your love affair with marathons. Something that I can't say that I share with you. Uh, you've run over 40 and is it true that you ran a marathon per month for a year? I did, yeah. Uh that was my midlife crisis. So it was like cheaper than a sports car and <laughs> less morally objectionable than some of the other outlets that people explore. And um, it, it was, I enjoy the, the running. Obviously, there are the cardiovascular benefits, but the mental aspect, the, the mind clearing, the ability to just kind of get away and think and deal with the challenge had a lot of meaning for me. Um, and once I started, uh, the first marathon I ran was actually in 1988, the Sunday morning after my wife and I were married on a Saturday night. So I've, I've like introduced the level of her tolerance and patience of my uh, career explorations and running. And then uh, I was in my early 40s when I ran my second one. And since it had been so long, I, I decided, hey, since I'm in shape, I'll just kind of keep going a little bit like the Forrest Gump movie. And I think it was 08. I realized if I had thought about it, I would have run one a month for that year. And in 09, I became intentional about doing so. I think I actually ran uh, 16 consecutive months I ran a marathon in. And there was one of those months where I ran back-to-back marathons with about eight days, one week basically apart, which I don't recommend actually based on how the second one went. How do you train for that? How much sleep do you have to get how much running do you do as part of the training i'm assuming you got to stay hydrated what do you eat like during that training period i uh i I would i had a route and i didn't follow a rigid training plan kind of listen to my body i knew that my my peak preparation run would be 20 miles which is its own adventure and i live now in birmingham alabama uh, when I trained for the first one, I ran in Utica, New York, and between the hills and kind of a running community there, 
that was that was pretty easy. But where I lived in Birmingham, I had about a six to eight mile route around our neighborhood. And then I was on the shoulder of a state highway. As I told people what I was doing, they thought I was I was like out of my mind. But <laughs> I could run on, run on the grass. And this is not like the sophisticated elite training plan, but I had I had on my route any number of convenience stores where I could go on and get a Gatorade. And it was really about doing the distance in total. And I wasn't worried about, you know, pace. So if I ran an hour, grabbed a Gatorade, walked a half mile and re-engaged, um, that really prepared me pretty well. You know, again, I wasn't elite. I'm 6'2", weighed probably 205 pounds at the time. So I was in the Clydesdale division. Uh, my best time was a three hour 53, uh, experience, which is pretty good. That was, yeah. And I, I got to the point where I could control my pace pretty well through the entirety, right around four hours, a little bit under. And again, the mental challenge, I was always nervous at the beginning. I had a whole routine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't eat much while I was actually running. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be careful about what I ate the night before. I will confess there were a couple times I ate ribs like the day before, and I still made it through. But... Uh, the experience for me, and I, I did New York, I did Boston, Missoula, Montana. Uh, one of them was was up in Prescott, Arizona, at altitude. Oh. Um, it was a pretty neat experience. It was kind of like uh, nine miles uphill, then four miles down the other side, then four miles back up and nine miles back down, and one of those memorable experiences. Speaking of Arizona, you've been out here for Fiesta Bowls and national championships. Just your thoughts on... State Farm Stadium, obviously the home of the Cardinals, and your experiences here in the Phoenix area. Yeah, you know, the first one out there, I remember, so the stadium was was relatively new, the Florida-Ohio State National Championship game, which really set off our string of successes over the last 15 or so years. I walked in um, to the stadium, kind of down to where uh, the stadium floor was, next to Senator John McCain. And as I'm walking by myself, Senator McCain's there. He's got a couple staffers, and I just like, I'm going to introduce myself to him uh, just out of respect for who he was and, and how he led and what he, what he did over his lifetime, the POW experience. And so I said hello. I told him my name. I told him I worked for the Southeastern Conference. He said, you guys are going to feel good tonight. You're going to, you're going to get this one. And remember, this wasn't at the end or in the midst of an area of uh, era of dominance, this was the, the beginning. Uh, LSU had won a, a couple of years before, and then we got a couple of years without having a team in. And uh, Ohio State was one, Florida was two. And I said, well, you know, I hope you're right. I'll have to play really well. I said, no, the difference will be the defensive line speed that Florida has. And if you remember the game, that was a huge factor. And I've often thought about that either he paid a lot more attention than I would have thought or he had a staff member brief him. And um, I've had enough conversations with, with senators that they pay a lot of attention to this. So I've credited him for knowing, and he was exactly right. And then my first national championship experience as commissioner was in January of 2016. You know, the Clemson-Alabama game, remember the onside kick that, that Alabama executed so well. Uh, we won, which was, was a really fun experience. You know, on, on a personal side, my family and I have, have been into Phoenix and then driven down south of Tucson to Sells, Arizona, 
and done some work through a church group there. So we've had any number of experiences uh, in the state, but have uh, really enjoyed the successes uh, when the national championship game has been uh, held in the Phoenix area. Well, you've done a tremendous job. The SEC is on top of the sports world in college, and in particular the college football world. What will the addition of Oklahoma and Texas mean for the SEC? And do you still see the SEC East and SEC West in the future, or do you think eventually you will get rid of the divisions? You know, as it relates to the meaning, um, you know, the cliche that we use is it will just mean more. And I think the, the addition of those two may, may have us like really typing in big letters and bold print that tagline <laughs> because w- uniquely for expansion of members, we, we restore rivalries. Uh, obviously, we'll be able to maintain the Oklahoma and Texas rivalry, a lot of focus on Texas A&M and Texas playing again. But the the, the history of the Arkansas-Texas uh, games is really quite spectacular and has deep meaning for both universities. Uh, Oklahoma and Missouri, I've actually had conversations about their wrestling teams and uh, you know how that plays out. You know, might that be something we could explore via the SEC network um, because of the success and prominence that both of those teams have? We don't have that as a support sport, but it – speaks to the relationship Oklahoma and Missouri had through their Big 8 membership. And 25% of the old Big 8 will soon be part of the Southeastern Conference. And then as you think about, you know, big brands and the level of competition, uh, that will just be magnified. And as it relates to scheduling, my observation up front when we added uh, the tour, announced the addition of Oklahoma and Texas, was that we kind of engaged in blue sky thinking like big picture, step away, remove restraints, think about all the options. But we also want to see our teams come through our campuses more frequently. You know, particularly in football, you take Missouri played at Auburn this year as an example. That that game has not been played in, in Auburn before. George has not played in College Station. And we have that in our current configuration, the crossover games it may be 10 or 12 years before those teams meet up. And so we want to see that happen with greater frequency. One of the ways we can do so is to have a single division format. That has become the focal point. That doesn't mean it's a done deal. Uh, But if we are in a single division, the question will be, are we going to play eight or nine games? There's mixed views on that. Um, And it's about being able to maintain some rivalries that will be prominent games. And in either eight or nine games allows us to cycle everyone through home and away over a four-year period of time. So being able to see Texas and Georgia play home and away, that would happen twice in four years. Uh, you know, Texas M playing Florida. Uh, it happens later on in this year's schedule. It happened, you know, uh, every other year in that new format. And you can multiply that for it. So we think that's a smart strategy. We still have some decisions to make. Uh, but the fundamental is let's see our, our big brands, our big teams, and there are going to be 16 of those move through all of our campuses with greater frequency. Do you see adding more schools, or is 16 a good number for the SEC? My view is 16 is a very healthy number. I, at, at our media days, was very intentional to say we're not on the recruiting trail. We're confident in our decision-making. We're comfortable with who we are as a conference. We know our identity. We understand our fan base. 
and we don't think it's necessary to just shoot for a number. When we made the decision around Oklahoma and Texas, we have uh, philosophically aligned athletics programs that want to provide incredible experiences for young people who seek to compete at a national championship level on on university campuses that are uh, on the cutting edge and, and among the leading universities in the nation. And we've done that in a contiguous way. Uh, we, we don't have some of the travel that our colleague conferences face. And I don't just mean that about uh, the Big Ten's move, but some of our other uh, colleagues have very distant trips. Our longest trip when we go to 16 will be Columbia, South Carolina to Austin, Texas, which is 80 or 90 miles longer than the College Station to Columbia, South Carolina trip. And, and uh, if there are, are changes that happen around us, uh, we're certainly mindful of the chatter that exists. Uh, we'll be prepared um, if there are more uh, pieces of the puzzle that are moving. But we're not ones that are looking at a number or looking to be uh, the recruiter, if you will, in this conference membership movement. Sure, sure. In terms of expansion of the college football playoff, going to 12 teams in 2024, how optimistic are you that that's going to happen? What has to happen? And what are the financial benefits of getting it done sooner than 2026? I know that's a multi-pronged question yeah. there. Well, my, my sense is that there's a, a desire uh, to facilitate early onset of an expanded playoff. Uh, your question about the likelihood, I think that really remains to be seen. There are a number of realities in front of us that don't just go away uh, because we want to make it work. I, I, the will, though, is there to make it work. And, you know, w- one of those issues is dates for first round games. We focused on on campus sites. There's a lot that happens around campuses across this country with final exams, the end of semester classes, uh, December graduation. You have an NFL schedule that's expanded its number of games, which means it's, it's covering more weeks. That creates some challenges. Um, and so those are just two that are top of mind. Um, I think the, the board was clear that come 26, their clear expectation is we have a 12-team format. Uh, for the college football playoff. And to the extent it's possible, we could go early. Uh, we've got some, some conversations over the upcoming weeks that may move us to that conclusion, to that finish line. Uh, but I'm not really clear that that still can happen. There's, there's still work to be done. Can you elaborate on, on some of the things that are hurdles or obstacles to, to sure. getting it done sooner, Greg? Yeah, yeah. Well, one is, you know, we, we introduced an idea, and then we spent a year not really acting on the details uh, because we had conferences that were just opposed. And this summer, some circumstances changed, and the presidents regathered, and now we have a 12-team format expectation. The reality is the loss of the time to deal with the issues uh, comes at a price, and that price is we're trying to move rapidly, and we still have to be thoughtful on our decision-making. So I'll go back. You know, We've got championship games scheduled that first weekend in December. That's our tradition. Uh, where do you fit in first-round games, some of which are with teams who may have played um, in playoff or excuse me, in conference championship games? So how do you provide for rest, recovery, and preparation? You have that campus conflict. Where do you place games for TV windows? 
if uh, in the NFL tradition is is at that point, like the third week of the season, there are games on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, well, that creates window limitations for college football playoff expansion. You then go forward to the bowl games. We have agreements with six bowl games that extend through the 25 season, which is part of a 12-year contract cycle. Um, there has to be work done to adjust those dates. It's not simply saying we were going to play your your bowl game on a different date. Cities have to adjust. Hotels have to adjust. Um, I think, you know, to my earlier comment, Dave, there's a will to move that forward. We also have to adjust the back end, the semifinals and championship gate, date timing and um, where those games are played and when. Even though it's a couple of years out, you know, there's a lot of demand for hotels and convention space and, and, and planning and preparation around those citywide type activities that are important revenue drivers and economic engines. And, and those elements have to be adjusted. And then you go back to kind of the, the small ball type issues are in the weeds. The details of campus hosting is brand new to college football. So we host games every week. Uh, but in the postseason, we're used to neutral sites generally hosted in bowl games that have great experience and a, a wide array of support. And so we're talking in about 12 days to go to some small college towns with enormous competitive experiences. And we need to we need to make sure that we've got the ability to support those games in the most positive way possible. So that's a quick list with high level headings. Hmm. And you can unpack that, and we could probably put people to sleep if I did <laughs> Well, and I know you're pressed for time as well, uh, but a couple more, we'll, we'll let you go. Um, how realistic is it, you know, given what you said about the NFL, extending its season on the back end with regular season games ending January 8th now instead of, you know, the first of the year, moving up college football a week. So week zero becomes week one, and then you have two weeks – of college football essentially before NFL starts. Is that realistic? I don't know is the honest answer. It's an idea that has been identified previously. Uh, The NCAA has a football oversight committee. That committee looked at this issue a few years ago at that time with the idea that you'd have a standard 14 week season and everybody would have two weeks, two open weeks embedded in their season. Ultimately, uh, the, the view of the, of the bowl subdivision uh, representatives was not to advance that, that move back to week zero. Uh, I expect that will be reconsidered, particularly as we look towards the 26 season. Uh, I'm not necessarily an opponent or an advocate. I'm a realist to know that the conversation will take place. That brings me back to the, the honest answer is, is I don't know. Uh, There were reasons that we collectively did not move to week zero when it was explored previously. We'll have to consider those reasons. We'll have to look at the fit of the the preseason practice period, the regular season itself, its conclusion, then leading into a playoff to see if uh, the structure might be supported and, if you will, defend it in a positive way. Uh, knowing we've got summer school, we have varying start dates for fall semester classes or in some circumstances fall quarter classes. All of those things play into the decision, which, again, was considered not that long ago and ultimately not advanced. Sure, sure. 
In terms of men's basketball, women's basketball as well, NCAA tournament expansion, I believe the quote was you said fresh look uh, is something that you want to explore. And Jim Phillips, the ACC commissioner, just recently touched on that as well. Can you elaborate on what expansion of the NCAA tournament like look might look like and would there be a rewarding of regular season champions that would be involved in that? My my entry into this conversation uh, has an entertaining backstory. I was in the middle of an interview with Pat Forty, and, and he asked me about you know NCAA championships. I co-chair a transformation committee; it's been labeled uh, for the NCAA. And, and I said, "Look, Pat, uh, because I've been through a set of meetings where people were all were all concerned about things being taken away." I said, "Look, I don't want to make headlines." Hmm. And Dave, what I learned. Um, is when I say to someone, I don't want to make headlines, I should just shut my mouth. <laughs> what, whatever follows is going to be reported. That's, you know, Pat like, was kind enough to call back and said, hey, that's news. And, and what I said was, there's so much, if you will, tension in Division One about things being taken away, like access to championships. So why don't we, we change, flip the script, and talk about growth? Um, and have I thought about what the growth might look like? Uh, you know, generally, yes. Uh, do I have a plan or do I demand that this take place? I don't. But I do know that we've watched the men's tournament grow from 64 to 68 to facilitate a few more teams. We've seen some of those teams advance as far as the Final Four that played in Dayton that were part of this, this uh, at-large edition. Um, and I think it's a relevant conversation. Some people will say you should go to 80 or 96. Um, I, can, I can be flexible around the number. Uh, I, I am comfortable with conference champion access continuing. Um, what I've learned, and my example is, was, was really Texas A&M being left out this year when they were playing really high-level basketball. Net was good, but not good enough. You know, Oklahoma had an even better net and was left out. But you look at Ole Miss in baseball, wins the College World Series, is generally recognized as the last team in. And you wonder about the first team out. Wow, if the last team in is that quality. Um, and you've seen in, in men's basketball, teams advance out of that 11 seed spot playing each other in Dayton to the Final Four. Uh, perhaps we should think differently. And that's what created the introduction I think there are a variety of different formats that can be explored. Uh, my, my view is we should be more thoughtful than just thinking that we're stuck and, and, and we should overcome the fear that something is being taken away. We have opportunities to add and, and, and likely even enhance the level of competition. Well, if it was up to my uh, college basketball broadcast partner, Bill Walton, uh, every Pac-12 team would get in, so you would have to expand. <laughs> you would have to expand. I've, I've heard that advocacy <laughs> a time or two, among many other interesting things. That may be one of his duller observations. <laughs> I had him on this podcast, Greg, last year, and he told a story about how Wilt Chamberlain threw a ball, a football 90 yards underhand on a rope. Somehow either that's a true story and there was – some enhancements involved to get to that point, or Bill <laughs> misremembers? Well, uh, it, it's, we're in the entertainment business. Yes. Either way, it's still entertaining, right? And, and last question for you, and certainly in my mind, the most important question that I've asked today. The picture that you tweeted out with a DeLorean, was that the real DeLorean from Back oh. to the Future? 
Um, I was in Atlanta. It was two in the morning when I pulled next to that car. Uh, it was at something called Dragon Con, where people spend three or four days in Atlanta on Labor Day weekend dressed up as their favorite characters from Star Wars to some things I don't even know. <laughs> I can't even imagine what they're supposed to be. And, and I pulled up, and there's Doc Brown's DeLorean. Um, I'm not certain that one could get up to 88 miles per hour <laughs> um, and, and cross into, I guess, the past or the future. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I, there was no certificate of validity. I think somebody is passionate about back to the future, more passionate than me. And I would rank it in one of the great movies of all time. When you look at the irony involved in the connections, um, and the guest appearance by Huey Lewis himself. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, that was but, huge. Yeah. The, 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 uh, I think that was just a fan and that was his shtick and there was a parade. Uh, so I, I, I rolled in there Thursday night, late, actually Friday morning and, uh, Saturday there was a parade with all kinds of things like that involved. I also feel like that was the first time now it's all over the place because of social media, but that was the first time in my childhood I remembered where a rock star and and a, and a football hall of famer were great friends. And you saw Huey Lewis at all the 49er games because he and Joe Montana were tight. Now it's everywhere, but that to me was my first recollection anyway. Well, you can, you can um, appreciate my central New York roots. I saw them in, in uh, 85 at the Wheat Sports Speedway in Wheat Sport, New York. Nice. Which has, you know it's summer when they're rocking at Wheat Sport. Oh, that yeah. Concert venue tagline back in the day. Yeah. But, yeah, those are, those are good things. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate the time, Greg. You're great to talk to. You do a phenomenal job, and uh, I know you do a lot of these, and you probably asked – uh, a lot of questions that at this point you can't answer, but I appreciate uh, you being as candid as you possibly can. And uh, best of luck the rest of the season. Always enjoy calling your games. Well, happy to do so. I didn't expect the DeLorean question. And I will just say, if you're able to lobby those at ESPN to assign you to a Labor Day weekend game in Atlanta, you ought to take it and go just sit and watch the scene that plays out because it is it – is, um, High-level, interesting. You know, I, I missed it then because we did the Monday night game. We did the Clemson-Georgia Tech game in Atlanta. I had no idea it was going on. My I didn't mistake. really go to the Hyatt and sit and watch. And, oh, man, and I missed it. Off, All right, Greg, thanks again, bud. Take care. Take care. We covered a lot there with Greg. Really appreciate how candid Greg was given how many questions he's been asked. And at this point, how much we really don't know about, A, if the college football playoff committee will vote on expanding to 12 teams prior to 2026, will the SEC go to just one 16-team division when Oklahoma and Texas come in? And then also, with regard to the NCAA men's basketball and women's basketball tournaments, will they expand into how many teams? Also, just Greg's great stories on being a marathon runner, and his love for Huey Lewis and the news, which I think if you grew up in the 80s, you have to love Huey Lewis and the news. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and by Gila River Resorts and Casinos. You can follow us on Twitter, at PashPod. Thanks to Commissioner Greg Sankey from the SEC, and thanks to you for listening to another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast.